welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. This is a special episode in multiple ways. Uh, in the first way, I, I, I would say it's special because I'm joined by the original co-hosts of Woo! the podcast. <laughs> um, so I'm delighted to introduce for the umpteenth time, uh, Sarah Beijing of York University. Hello, Sarah. Good morning, panel. Thank you for having me back. Of course, anytime. Uh, no, no thanks necessary. And, and we are joined as well by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, great to have you back. It's good to be back on the podcast. It is a special recording also because we are in person. Probably the quality of sound uh, has already cued the listener in to this being somewhat special. Uh, we are at the Omni Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island. This is the meeting place for the American Society for Theater Research Conference this year, Aster 2023. Um, this site is also located on what is known as Maswakut, the land between two rivers, and the territory of Mashantikut, the ancestral homelands of the Narragansett, Poconoket and Nipmuc people. For centuries, these communities have been dispossessed of their ancestral lands in Rhode Island and have resisted attempts on the part of the state and colonists to destroy or detribalize their leadership structures. I'd like to acknowledge this history and, as always, encourage our listeners to learn more about the territory where they live. And please also uh, navigate to the land acknowledgement page on our podcast website, ontappod.com, to learn more. So we are here in Providence for Aster 2023 on the theme of hope. Harvey is the program chair for this meeting. Harvey, I got here on Thursday early afternoon. I managed to catch the first plenary and several other sessions. Um, it, it really seems like it's a fantastically successful conference so far. Great attendance. The, the sessions, the plenary sessions that I've been in have been packed standing room only. And that's not because the rooms are small. It's because everyone is, <laughs> everyone is trying to get in. Uh, the discussions have been vibrant. So I just want to say, I know the conference is not over yet, but congratulations and, and thank you for, for organizing this. I wonder if you could just tell us how you feel like it's been going from your vantage as conference planner. Yeah, well, well, by the time you're listening to this, the conference will be over. So let's, let's just say it was a massive success for a conference. <laughs> Conference. But honestly, it's it's wonderful to uh, walk around and see scholars I admire, and and you know. So I was like I was this morning at Cafe Nero, and you know, like around the corner from me was Jill Dolan having a conversation. Andrew Sofer uh, walked in. Marvin Carlson was in line. You know, Sarah. You know, uh, we, we we saw each other in line as well. Indeed. Uh, so it's just you know seeing the entire field come together. Uh, it's what recharges us. So I'm thrilled by this experience. That's that's fantastic. It, it has been it has been very uh, <clears throat> successful from my vantage point as a uh, society member and, and conference participant. And and on my draft, I think I might get even a little deeper into what I think has made this conference special. But um, I'll save that for, for the end. <laughs> that's my way of reminding you again. I'm, I know you have your drafts prepared, but in case you need to think of one <laughs> during the course of the recording, which I have done before, uh, remember drafts. But before we get to drafts, um, uh, I wanted to just uh, sketch out what the the topics are that we have. Um, in past recordings where we've recorded on-site at a conference, we've done a segment on the conference itself. We're not doing that this time. 
We have three uh, current and uh, really, to me, interesting topics that I'm excited to get into. We read a pre-publication draft of The Work of Art in the Age of Digital Commodification by Annie Dorson and Sam Gill. Um, this is an article that is going to come out in TDR soon. Portions of it, or a, 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 some of it, was presented at the Interpolations One Symposium held by, uh, hosted by the BMO Lab at the University of Toronto a few weeks ago where Sarah was in attendance, so we're gonna talk about that article and that event somewhat. Um, we are also going to consider the challenges facing theater makers and scholars as anti-wokeness seems to continue to define the current moment in conservative cultural politics in the United States in particular. Um, all sorts of uh, nasty state legislative um, initiatives that are having an effect on educators, people in higher education, people in uh, high school and elementary school education, um, and performers and theater makers. So we want to talk about what is going on there. Um, and finally, we will reflect on the career of Matthew Perry, um, um, who passed away on October 28th um, at his home in Los Angeles. This gives us um, Gen Xers, an opportunity to, as we like to do in this group, the three of us, uh, indulge in a little bit of nostalgia, uh, 90s nostalgia, um, and talk about this um, influential actor and his life and legacy. Um, so, to dive right into that first topic, we, as I said, read a draft of the work of art in the age of digital commodification by Annie Dorson and Sam Gill. Um, many listeners will know um, who Annie Dorson is. She is a theater director and scholar known for her uh, pioneering work on algorithmic theater or AI theater. Um, uh, uh, which critically examines, I would say her early work is definitely a critical examination of the agency of computational tools. Um, she's a MacArthur Award winner. Sam Gill may be uh, less of a familiar name to uh, our listeners, but he is the president and CEO of the Doris Duke Foundation, which is one of the biggest, perhaps the biggest American institutional funder of performing arts. This is coming out in a forthcoming edition of TDR. Um, uh, I want to be, be sure that I mention that it is still being edited. I think the version we saw is close to finished. Um, it is possible that we will quote things or represent things in the article that then change before publication. But uh, what we have has been in process for a while, and um, I think definitely shows uh, the, the argument that, that Gill and Dorson are, are presenting. Um, this was, as I also mentioned, presented at the University of Toronto at the BMO Lab, um, a one-day symposium called Interpol Interpolations One uh, that included um, some uh, Friends of the podcast, Sarah herself was there, Miriam Felton-Dansky, Elizabeth Hunter, Sydney Skybetter, more people. So um, Sarah, I wonder if you might tell us a bit about the article, which I think was presented as a keynote. You were one of the respondents to it. I was, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, feel, why don't you start us off and just give us a sense of what that event was like and um, uh, uh, what listeners need to know at a sort of summary level about what this article is. So the, the article really takes up what I they say, and I, I would agree, has been a kind of under-attention or lack of theorization about how digital contexts are changing art-making, and particularly performance art-making and consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the article uh, and, the, and the respective keynote that was offered uh, by, by both Annie and Sam, um, in the, the first part kind of deals with 
what the and, and very specifically, not just digital environments and digital technologies, but digital commodification. Like what happens when art circulates in and as a digital currency? So not just NFTs, but, you know, streaming and, you know, productions and everything that kind of happens in that space. Um, uh, Shannon Steen's new book uh, on creativity takes up some of the same questions, mm -hmm. right, of looking at, at the role of the creator mm -hmm. and the influencer as a kind of para-artistic enterprise. And so they, so Andy Dorson and, and Sam Gill really take up that question. And then the second part, part you know, I, I imagine as a matter of timing, you know, the, their writing of the article spans um, what we might call the chat GPT epistemological break mm -hmm. uh, of what, I'm not entirely sure yet, reality, democracy, who knows? Uh, but there's that kind of generative. And so the, the second part of the article really takes up that in particular mm -hmm. and starts to think through how generative AI might affect and shape some of this. But certainly the, you know, the key elements here the reliance on data, the the ways that engagements have been uh, shifted, what an audience is, what a community is, how one defines one's friends. These are all things that the article takes up in, in a really robust way. And and I just wanted to say a, a quick, uh, you know, thank you and, and uh, highlight to, to Doug Eco, who organized the Interpolations Conference um, and also was one of the co-editors for the uh, forthcoming issue of TDR in which the article appears. And I, I think his thinking around this has been really important. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for that summary. It was it was a great read. I'll, I will just add, having spent uh, some time with the article this week, that it's not a neutral presentation of the of opinion about no, no, what, that is true. <laughs> what these processes mean. I mean, this is a trenchant critique of what the of, of the effects that this um, digital commodification uh, has on art making. Um, one of the things that I think about it that is really interesting is that it is once it is at once a uh, explicitly overtly Marxist critique. It is the the argument about what digital commodification is and the way artistic production is being reorganized, the way that we are all, um, uh, and more to the point, you know, artists and professional artists are now users and producers in this hyper-managed, uh, profit-seeking, brave new world. It's, on the one hand, a sort of critique rooted in uh, radical political economy. It's The connections to Marx are overt. On the other hand, it is also an argument in favor of uh, more traditional gatekeeping functions by institutions that uh, have previously and, and continue, I think, to organize artistic activity. So part of the argument is that to the extent, if, I'm, if I understand it, to the extent that we are given over to this new way of organizing creative activity and audience attention, uh, the old, you know, the, the, the selection, the artistic d discernment, the professionalization um, that has been cultivated by legacy institutions, you know, the Met, uh, regional theaters, uh, or orchestras um, is dying away. So it seems as though it's both a kind of, in a certain way, radical and a certain way, conservative argument. Well, it, it highlights one of these big tensions in digital culture, which is, you know, since we're reflecting back on the 90s, <laughs> you know, remembering that the promise of these 
social networks of these kinds of internet distributed, non-hierarchical, non-institutional communities was that you could bypass the limitations and the exclusions and the biases of those traditional gatekeepers. Um, and this is something that that the folks and the scholars I've mentioned Trevor Schultz and own this and uh, on the podcast before, but that that people working in digital labor and the questions around have been grappling with for twenty years. What I think, you know, and 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 Gill is a little more uh, optimistic than than Dorson is, okay. interestingly enough. Um, I suppose it's it's in his professional best interest to be, um, and I think it's in, well, frankly, all of our be- professional best interest for him to be op- more optimistic about this. Um, but it's it it really is that tension, which is so, you know, we not so long ago were critiquing exactly the systems that now we're kind of hearkening back to as saying like, oh no, that was we we're <laughs> yeah. losing something so valuable. Yeah. Harvey, where do you come on all this? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this is a great article. Uh, and it it feels like one of those sweeping, grand readings of the moment, you know, that also feels like 20 years from now, people will look back on this piece to say, okay, here is the diagnosis of this shift in culture. And what I take away from it in particular is how the idea and the, and the, the work of and the, and the production of digital art is so ever present, you know, that it's changing every level of engagement, right? From, you know, the work of the passerby, the person on the street, you know, who then becomes a generator of, of work, right? Of, of these things, of these objects mm-hmm. that then are commoditized, right? You know, and there's, there's a line early in the article about, you know, you cannot walk down the street without seeing someone take a selfie or a video mm-hmm. and realizing that that is intended for distribution, you know, in a digital way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's true. That's real. Think about going to a concert, for example, you know, and the idea of how this, there's a cycle of production, you know, where we're all brought in to be a creator of, of a form of art, you know, whether it's as an amateur or as a professional, mm-hmm. that then kind of feeds into a system, you know, that seeks to not only frame the appetites of future audiences, but also to monetize it in some manner. Uh, and it's just realizing this is the world we're in. Yeah. And it's... It's it's you will read this article and find yourself nodding along because it's such an astute read of this moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it. I think I, I agree with you, Darby. I feel like it it clarifies and and gives a really substantial diagnosis for a moment. I I will say I'm quite sympathetic to the argument. I think I agree wholeheartedly with um, the attitude that Dorsen and Gill have towards these big monopolistic data engine companies it's you know it's meta it's uh google i don't i feel like they don't mention youtube as much but a lot of the interactions that consumers have with performed media of one type or another i think happen through youtube but they also mention netflix many times so it's also the sort of content licensing uh and delivery entities which are not the same thing as social media right i think they they talk about a pattern that we would be familiar with from instagram or or tiktok where you're consuming you're watching the performers who you like uh you may be posting your own stuff 
and therefore being a sort of user, producer, consumer, but you're performing also by interacting or you're, you're giving data into it by interacting, by looking at some things more than others, by liking certain things. Um, uh, so I think it's, it, it's sweeping. Um, I think it's part of what I thought was really interesting about this, or part of where I had critical questions was about one place in particular, which is the extent to which there's an argument in here that the performances, the creative expression, they become videos or uploads or, or sort of these digital commodities that then become equivalent with each other. And that this tends to erase distinctions that previously are based on discernment um, or sort of genre or other categorical distinctions that we rely on to understand what art is. Um, and it, made, it put me in mind of a couple of, I don't know, critical questions. Maybe this came up in the symposium. Doug, I spoke to him about this. He says this is a sort of long-standing argument or, or debate in media theory. But I'm not sure that I buy yet that the extinction, that the distinctions are completely elided. So for example, if I post an Instagram photo of my Halloween costume, right? Mm -hmm. I'm generating content. And if my friend who is a professional costume designer on a television show posts a photograph of her work, these are both sort of costume performances. They both become Instagram posts, which then get fed and sorted into the algorithm and sent to people on a you know, monetization priority basis. But one, I don't think that the receivers of those posts don't know the difference, right? In other words, I think the professional costume design work can still be read as the work of someone who has discernment and training and professionalization versus my, you know, entrepreneurial, individualistic, messing around with my Halloween costume. One, two, those legacy institutions still exist. Like, like yes, more and more of our lives and attention are being managed by these big data-driven companies, but they have not, it's unclear to me the extent to which that infiltration of or capturing of our attention is also destroying or minimizing or getting rid of those institutions that are also doing the professionalization, the training, the, the discernment, right? I, I think the, the, the f I think we have to start segmenting this out <clears throat> because the, who is the audience? Who is the hour? Who, you know, there are a lot of assumptions in what you're saying about who's looking mm -hmm. and, and what, what they know, what lens they're looking through when they receive this information. One of the dangers, I think, in all social media is that we tend to assume that whatever we're looking at is equally the way that yes. at least the majority, if not everyone else, is looking at this. You know, for years, of course, decades, I suppose, we've been sort of battling this idea of the audience and, and individual people standing in and saying, the audience does, the audience felt. But mm -hmm. if, you, if you are a theater goer like me, you will find that very often I, I found myself to be radically out of step with the audience. People are loving a show and I am sitting there fuming about how <laughs> terrible it is and, and bickering in my head with like what a lack of discernment my fellow audience you know, um, members have for this particular show. Or I am laughing out loud when no one else is. Or I am, I come out, right? So, so this idea of like the monolithic audience, what our current digital environment does and what they speak to and where I think this equivalence comes is that, um, is that the audience for any given work is far more selective 
and passive. So for example, the costume designer, right, on Instagram is going to people who are likely to understand and value what that is because of the preferences they have already expressed on the platform. Whereas one of the best things I've seen recently is the Halloween uh, video meme where someone dressed up her um, mother and her boyfriend as uh, Taylor Swift and um, Travis Kelsey um, (laughs) in their 80s. Uh, And so they went as like, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 82, right? And so, um, and, and also costume, not terribly sophisticated, no discernment from, for a costume, but, but terribly entertaining. And I Mm -hmm. think that's part of what, what Dorson and Gill are talking about is that it's this idea about entertainment and reception and audience across a lot of different demographics. And so those of us who were, you know, came of age and raised in and acculturated to institutional culture, mm-hmm. the Met, MoMA, mm-hmm. you know, our, even our, our, our local repertory theater, our lo- local rep, Lord, um, is very different than people who have come of age in, in consuming culture primarily through this kind of individual segmented right. uh, area. And, and the, the last piece I'll say that I think is really important is that most people, including all of us, you know, highfalutin elitist types, are also consuming an enormous amount of culture mm-hmm. through algorithmic yes. recommender systems, both our social media feeds as well as our Netflix recommenders, et cetera. And I really, the, the, the question I have uh, is, what does that do to our taste? Mm-hmm, right. What does that do to our preferences? What is that doing to our expectations? And, and the danger, I think, is, is less in what is being produced and how that affects artists, although the effect is significant, but is even more so in how it is shaping audience expectations and what notions of discernment, quality, distinctions are. And I think, I think they do have a point that these platforms are, over time, likely to elide and, and to erase many of the distinctions that those of us who came of age in analog culture more or less take for granted and, and see. And I don't know that we can make that assumption about everybody. And, Sorry, and that was a long... It, it, just along those lines, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a... It's, it's related, but it's a bit of a tangent. I've been spending a lot of this year thinking about professional theater. Uh, and, and the subscription model dying, right? The subscription model is just dying. It's nearly dead uh, in a lot of regional theaters. Um, and one of the arguments is that audiences no longer want to have a packaged experience, you know, to say that, you know, you will see this and this and this and this, where there's four things that are somewhat unlike, you know, mm-hmm. a musical, a drama, um, an identity play, uh, and then, you know, something else, right? You know, and so... It's, it's, it's what you're saying, Sarah, you know, the idea that you know, what audiences want is I want in this algorithmic culture that we live in, you know, I want to see the thing I like and then something else like the thing I like. Mm-hmm. And the traditional subscription model is one of some level of variety and variation. Yep. And people are rejecting that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that you can sort of see the evolution of taste you know, being sort of shifted and changed within this digital culture that we live in uh, that's having an impact on uh, declining uh, subscriptions going into symphony orchestras or going into the theaters and stuff like that. Uh, and you can just talk to people anecdotally and people are just so accustomed to, and we're all accustomed to picking up our phone and then yeah. having products delivered to us, 
right? You know, sort of if, if you like that reel, yep. you just stay, you know, just wait three more seconds and there's another reel like the one you just saw and that's gonna keep you hooked in and engaged all day long. Yep. The entertainment model in digital commodification and, and, and Dorson and Gill don't say this explicitly, um, but, but they sort of gesture towards it. The, the current model is high volume, low cost, and that the more you consume, the more you see things you like. Yes. Mm-hmm. Theater's model, and the subscription is great, but I would say even, even people you know, seeing theater in a, in a wider sort of you know, individual kind of choosing things is exactly the opposite. It is low volume, high cost, and the more you see, the more you see things you don't like. Yes. <laughs> because that's true. because that's just the way that's just what theater going is. And so for many of I mean, you know, what I've said to my students is like 60% of the stuff I see, I'm like, mm. yeah, you know, yeah, another, you know, 20 to 30% is truly terrible. Right. Yeah. And like 10% is life affirming, life changing. And so I think many of us who go to see a lot of theater are, are more like, you know, gold prospectors where we like sift, yes. sift, 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 yes. sift. And then when we find our nugget, it's like, it was worth it. That is so true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and the cost is high in term, not just in terms of the production effort, but in terms of, uh, how much time and energy you have to spend to get in the yes. room. And then site what reference do, by and, Brian Herrera's, you know, just documenting the energy that it takes to get yeah. to the theater. Yeah. This is fascinating. I, I, I think Sarah and, and, and Harvey, you may have covered this in a way, but I want to make sure that part of what their analysis is, is that it's not just taste that is changing and that the way we are delivered information and the things we are training ourselves or the algorithms are training us to respond to is making us different consumers, but that the art that is being created before it's even created is now conditioned to some extent by the incentives that the platforms create. So, you know, part of the scary phenomenon that they point to is that, you know, dancers, musicians, performers are increasingly thinking about making posts. They are increasingly interpolated before the fact and creating art according to what they suspect will get broader engagement, which may be, some of them are making money doing this, but largely it's, I think it's just the dopamine hit that you get when you get a lot of likes or responses or, you know. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't, I think it's way more important to the business model. I don't think you can be a successful right. artist of any kind right now if you do not actively and and not incidentally but but very deliberately cultivate a social media following i mean for it's been at least 10 15 years or so right uh since i was talking to a, like hollywood you know a friend of mine who's worked as a producer in hollywood and for a long time now when you walk into a room with a pitch or or your agent is circulating one of the first things they check is how many followers you have yes yes yeah and and this is <clears throat> i accidentally saw another reference to a phenomenon that sort of answers this question. I was watching the YouTube show hot ones. This is the show interview celebrity (laughs) interview show where people eat progressively hotter hot sauce on chicken wings. I was watching the episode with, um, uh, Will Ferrell and the interviewer asked him, you know, you were trained in Chicago at, you know, second city, et cetera. Is that still the way that people get into comedy or has it been, displaced by the internet, right? Like there are people who are on the cast of SNL now, largely because they honed their craft and they connected with audiences and they made their reputation just through the platforms or in a combination of the platforms and the conventional 
uh, uh, organizations. So while I think Dorson and Gill, partly I would imagine because of Gill's position at Doris Duke, is interested in fine arts and you know orchestras, theaters, operas, etc., it's also things like Second City, right? Do you really, if you're a young, funny, creative uh, uh, artist, maybe you're better off just working on your reels or your TikToks, and you don't need that other you know, you don't necessarily need that other training. And as they point out, that, you know, changes the art form, but it also atomizes right. the artistic producers. You're no longer necessarily part of a troupe, part of an organization. Uh, you're less likely to be unionized or able or inclined to work collectively. So there's all sorts of creepy potential effects of this. I still wonder, it's still in my mind, you can still make the argument, I think, that uh, you can separate... Maybe this is naive, but isn't it the case that an artist might think of their Instagram presence, their TikTok presence as being the thing that they are doing to promote themselves and that what their profession is is not entirely based on that, right? In I think words, it depends on who the artist is. I mean, they say in the article that, you know, every artist is a creator, but not every creator is an artist. Yes, right. One of the, I can't remember what, poll it was, but a relatively recent poll said that something like, you know, over 40% of young people when polled asked what their career aspirations were, was to be an influencer. Oy, oy, oy. Wow. So I, again, I think it's, it, we really have to recognize that the way we see the world and how we see the world and, and what our expectations are as we look at contemporary culture and entertainment and media is not what our, like, you know, I've, two kids in their 20s, is not the way that they are looking at the world. And it's certainly not the way our, our students and, and younger are looking at the world. And, um, and the reality is that other humans don't know how the humans are looking at the world nearly as well as the machines understand how humans are looking at the world. And this is why I, I you know, so all of my most recent work has been on data. Yeah. And, and because I think data literacy is one of the most critical things that we can be learning, teaching, incorporating into our practice, beca because it is, it is so vital to how things get circulated. Right. And it's not about, only about how things get created. And I'm totally sympathetic to, to Dorson and Gill's argument in the, in, in the essay, which I, I agree with Harvey is really, is really key, but is also, but you know, there's only ever so many artists at any given time. Mm -hmm. But historically, artwork is always shaped by audience mm -hmm. and audience expectations. It's always shaped by physical superstructures that determine yes. what gets seen and by whom and how things get resourced. Right. Uh, what is different about this moment is it's changing very, very fast. Um, and that the mechanisms, this was another part that they draw out in their article, that the mechanisms are largely invisible Mm -hmm. But even more dangerous, I think, is that they're largely unknown to many of us. Mm -hmm. Not that they are, some parts are unknowable, for sure. But there are other parts that aren't. And I mm -hmm. think if, if there's one thing that we're going to do to kind of critically resist this, it has to be through education. It has to be through exposure and inquiry from different, different dimensions. And it has to be done with some kind of knowledge of what it is that we're looking at mm -hmm. and that we are being really... Um, uh, rigorous with ourselves about what are the assumptions that we bring to these encounters because I I just you know you guys look great so you know you're not 
this is not happening to you, but every year I go, I feel further and further away from where my incoming students are. Yes. Oh, right. Yes. And the, the sort of gap. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, so I just, I, we have to know more about the machines. We have to know more about data. We have to become more data literate and we have to get our students to engage in that space as well. Yes. And I think it's also important to have the students engage in the, in the analog, right? hundred uh, percent. And it's, it's, it's the input, you know, it's, it's making sure that on both sides, not that it's a binary, you know, but, 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 but on both sides, you know, whether it's a student, whether it's the teacher, whether it's uh, generational differences, you know, that people are aware of, of what they're consuming mm -hmm. uh, and the limitations of what they're consuming. And, and I think that, you know, the current pathway we're on is, is one in which if you're uncritical of, of your consumption patterns, you know, which are uh, presented on a plate for you with all your favorite bites and morsels there. Yeah. Uh, then they call it a feed for a reason. They do. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you can lose sight of, of, of what's framing your perspective. And I think that's part of the need to make sure that we're consciously, uh, you know, sort of seeking out additional inputs. So listeners should look for this in TDR, uh, the work of art in the age of digital commodification, well worth the, the read. Um, we wanted to shift gears and talk about another uh, condition that can be diagnosed of the present moment. Um, uh, you know, in, in planning the episode, Harvey suggested the prompt of how do we think about this moment, book bans, challenges to DEI work in universities, attempts to outlaw um, uh, certain historical studies. How do we think of these challenges in relationship to the promised commitments of the summer of 2020? In other words, the um, not just the pandemic, but uh, the, the um, outrage and protests over the murder of George Floyd, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera. Um, so we wanted to touch base and talk about what this means in higher education for theater makers and performers. Um, we, I, I, in looking into uh, information about this, I came across the website for uh, PEN America. This is, uh, I think it's PEN.org, but it's a, an organization of writers, poets, essayists, and novelists that has tried to systematically track the legislation coming out of American state legislatures that are basically educational gag orders in some cases, sometimes banning uh, books and attempting to seek, get them removed from public libraries, from school libraries. Um, they report, and there's, they have an update, uh, a pretty extensively researched update that was published November 9th, just a, a couple of days ago, that indicates that there are uh, 40 different such laws, most of which are legislation, some of which passed by executive order, that are effectively now being enforced in the United States. Um, they point out that of the 110 bills of this type that were that were put forward in 2023 to date, only 10 passed. That sounds hopeful, I suppose, because that's less than 10%, but those are added to previously existing bills, so that there's something like 40 bills on the on the books now. Um, Charlotte Canning, in her paper at the State of the Profession Plenary, talked about the work she is doing in Texas as a theater historian, trying to combat some of these vicious laws that don't just, um, you know, uh, outlaw DEI work and force institutions to remove language and get rid of anything that they're doing that's overtly committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but laws that ban uh, performance that doesn't just include, you know, drag performance, 
Um, but anything that can be perceived as sexual in nature and anything that can be perceived as gender bending or gender switching in general. In other words, banning long-standing traditional theatrical practices of cross-gender casting. Um, so that is, I don't know, that maybe I, I did too much by giving an overview of this, but Harvey, <laughs> you mentioned this. I know that you have given public talks recently about the sort of anti-wokeness phenomenon and those challenges. I wonder if you could just say more about your perspective on this from your vantage. Yeah, I mean, the way I think of it is if you go back to summer 2020, when we were all dealing with COVID, right, in terms of the arrival, uh, the steps that were being taken, the uncertainty related to the availability of vaccines, right? So you know, the, the shifting model of education uh, that was happening at that time period, uh, everyone being at home, right? People, people sent home, told to stay home and stay generally apart from one another, uh, at least six feet away from, from one another. Uh, there was also uh, a heightened level of activism, you know, certainly among college students uh, tied into uh, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, and, and that activism was international, right? So the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter in summer 2020, it crossed oceans. And people had a, found an opportunity to talk about discrimination and prejudice and injustice wherever they lived, right? And they found it through the activism within Minneapolis, you know, and George Floyd's murder. And of course, within colleges, within universities, within professional theater, think about We See You, America, we see you White American Theater, mm -hmm. there were these calls, you know, for change, right? So when you have someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda saying, here was my experience in professional theater and it was bleak, right? And you're like, that's Lin-Manuel Miranda saying that, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it had this real ripple effect. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then through that, there was this call for change, right? So between uh, petitions and commitment statements from universities and professional theaters, you know, there was this long list of here's what we're gonna do. We're going to commission new artists. We're going to change our programming. We're going to implement DEI workshops. We're gonna do a number of things. Uh, and then there was requests and demands for accountability. So don't just say you're going to do it. You know, you know, check in every year and, and let us know how you're measuring up to these previously articulated commitments. And that was three years ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now it's three years later, and things have shifted and changed. So we have book bans on the rise. Uh, we have you know, anti-woke movements, people with bumper stickers with woke with a line through it. Uh, and you're seeing a lot of these commitments being challenged directly, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, previously efforts to diversify enrollments in schools being challenged by U.S. Supreme Court rulings. Right. Um, you know, your commitments around programming and, and diverse, diversifying syllabi being challenged by book bans, uh, by canceling plays. You know, and I'm interested in this moment in which what seemed like this really wonderful, exciting, inclusive, forward-moving initiative to improve our societies by being more inclusive, by allowing people to see themselves represented in books, in literature, on the stage, like those commitments toward progress are being undercut within three years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm interested in this topic. Yeah. Do you, I mean, it seems to me that historically, and I think you know this better than anyone, but you know, movements are often met with different kinds of backlash. Absolutely. And you know, we see this kind of recursive move forward, which is, you know, three steps forward, two steps back yes. over and over again. Would you say that this current moment feels part of that pattern or is there something categorically or 
historically specific about about this moment right now? It's it feels different in a way. Um, I think part of it might be again to go back to our, our previous topic. You know what our feeds are, mm-hmm. right? You know, so you know there is a way in which the antagonisms and the fragmentation gets amplified because people only hear one side of the story, right? So the outrage that I would say is manufactured uh, in many instances here uh, just gets multiplied over and over and over again and people don't understand and, and get access to the counter argument. Mm-hmm. And that and that feels different to me. It feels different than um, when there were news media outlets uh, and news and other forms of news, feed, news feeds that offered or made an attempt to be objective, impartial, offering multiple perspectives. I think people are not getting that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're seeing the split within the U.S. context um, that's quite extreme, where you have Florida banning so many books, Texas banning a certain number of books as well, and then you have the complete opposite experience in a place like Massachusetts, where I live, and you, and you start to wonder, how can it be so polarized? So one question I have about this, because I, I think partly it's the way we framed the topic, but I think it, the topic serves up this question, is what to what extent the professional theater is feeling this, or even theater within higher education, because the information, you know, the things that Charlotte Canning is talking about, these are drag shows and laws that seem to accidentally, perhaps not accidentally, have these ramifications that show how naive the people writing the legislature, the legislation are about, you know, what uh, the types of performance that people are trained in or exposed to in college. In other words, I imagine most of these people would say, we did not we did not intend to outlaw the original historical acting practice of Shakespeare. We think Shakespeare is something that should be taught. We think that the critical race theory and, and you know, uh, uh, gender theory should not be taught. Um, but it feels as though those, the institutions that are directly fighting for their ability to do what they want are not theater organizations so much. In other words, I don't know that regional theaters are coming up against state legislatures because of their programming or casting choices. There was a high school production in Dallas of Oklahoma where a trans male actor was cast and then the law and in, in a lead role in Oklahoma and then the school uh, took that role away from him because their policy now is in line with this, you know, the Texas cultural politics rules that say that you can't cast across gender, which of course forget, it basically denies the existence of that person as male. Um, but my sense, what I wonder is, to your framing of this question or your inquiry, Harvey, into what three years later are theaters doing? You know, does it, I'm not sure that they're in con, you know, direct confrontation with state laws or these you know opportunistic legislative initiatives i do wonder if the you know ongoing dwindling of subscriber base the ongoing financial problems of these institutions isn't affecting programming choices and i haven't looked at this so i don't know but are people putting as many plays by uh, black and and other author, playwrights of color on stage uh, as they were in 2021, 2022. That I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, there's more today than there were in 2020 because there's been a lot of commissions, right? Okay. So, and the commissions have now been realized. And it, it varies. Uh, 
but what I would say is if you look at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is my go-to example, you know, like, like Nataki Garrett, when she arrived, it was going to be transformative. Uh, she was going to continue uh, Bill Rausch's you know, sort of work toward inclusion. And what she experienced was uh, just not only the uh, structural deficit that she inherited. So I want to be very clear about that. Like she yep. inherited a structural deficit when she came into the job, uh, but you know the venom of racism and prejudice that she experienced, and the backlash against mm -hmm. the programming choices that that she made, which was in many ways continuing Bill's vision as well. You know, reached a point where she quit. Right. So that that's happened. Uh, you can look at Victory Gardens Theater uh, in Chicago. You can look at New Rep in Massachusetts, which has closed down, and they all sort of fell apart. Uh, because of of these controversies and tensions around race and inclusion, ultimately, uh, and I think that's where we are. Um, and you know, more generally, if you look at subscribers, you know, who, and it varies by theater company because the the ones that have actually made an effort to be inclusive in terms of expanding their subscriber base, you know, they're those are the ones that are doing well right now, you know. But the I don't know, less diverse subscriber bases, you know, dealing with theater companies with these new commissions, they're not supporting the work, right? So that's where you're seeing also declining numbers of subscriptions. Uh, single ticket uh, purchases are lower, you know, for the diversity series within, you know, sort of theater companies or within orchestras, for example. Uh, so you're seeing that level of backlash. And yeah. I think because of that, you're seeing a reduction of programming. And you're going to see that over the next few years, where there's mm -hmm. going to be less of a commitment to staging new work by uh, BIPOC uh, uh, artists, for example, because yeah. of a concern about revenue. So I think if the, in that analysis, you could argue that there are different but related kinds of backlash. I think of these anti-trans bills, these book banning and gag order bills, uh, and again, maybe it's too naive. I think of them as an opportunistic effort by Republican politicians to try to replace Trump and that as you, there's some evidence that it's not working, right? The DeSantis campaign, which was, has been very much predicated on this kind of culture war stuff, has not done well. I'm not sure that it's turning out to benefit the politicians to lean so heavily into these sadistic bills. Um, but then it's possible also that the financial troubles of theaters under new leadership or who've been programming more work by artists of color seeing those audiences dwindle away, that's not the same thing, but it could be a related kind of backlash, perhaps. I don't know. I think it ties into our earlier topic, which is that the polarization and audience segmentation is not restricted to the online space, but is, is very much affecting what's happening in all kinds of cultural spaces, on and, on and offline. I'm, I'm struck in what you're saying, Harvey, right, by, the, by the whole idea of the glass cliff, mm -hmm. right? Like there's also a moment in which people were finally given opportunities to lead these, in some instances, really storied institutions. And they did so at a moment in which success was virtually structurally impossible. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also just reminded too, and I think there's some really interesting parallels to the 90s culture wars. Yes. And thinking about the NEA4 and how, how, how much attention and energy that consumed um, on the right, but I would say that in part because it was about what was compulsory, right? There was compulsory funding. And as soon as they were able to get rid of the funding, you could do whatever you wanted because the resources weren't there. What's, what I'm struck by in the current context is that public education is, is in many states constitutionally guaranteed, 
right? It is, it is, a, it is, a, it is a government mandate. Mm -hmm. And you can see lots of attacks on public education over the last 40 years or more. School voucher programs, the rise of charter schools, the, um, you know, in, in many instances, you know, trying to divert public funds to support school choice initiatives, um, uh, things like that. And, and it's because public education is still compulsory. I don't know that anyone really cares about theater. That's my take too. I, that's, you know, that's I, so I, I don't even know if it's that it's <laughs> it's naive on their part. I think they're just like, you know, it's it's not like anyone's going to be like, oh right, the drag shows, my bad. Oh my goodness, you're right. I had totally forgotten about you know the emergence and restoration. <laughs> so sorry. Let's go back and fix it. Yeah. But um. But I think it is much more systematic in terms of it is trying to attack um, fundamentally public institutions and, and, and what is compulsory government support of public institutions. And so I, whereas we can look at, at any individual political campaign doing well or not doing well in this context, it is part of a much longer decades old agenda, which is to undermine public support. Mm -hmm. And to yeah. privatize, to you know, to segment, to draw on this kind of polarization moment, and and I you know I don't know you know how it's all going to play out because again so much of the impact from all of these actions takes effect in a in a you know I don't mean to sound like you know data you know mm -hmm. data driven paranoid but. I do think a lot of this takes place in areas that are not readily legible to many of us. Um, and so I, I do wonder about the long-term impact of this. And mm -hmm. again, what we expect from schools, what we expect from school libraries, what we expect from yep. you know, school drama programs. Um, and, and much to the point that in the, in the first segment talking about the article, those expectations will then over time shape what people believe they can do and what they imagine is possible and what they introduce into those spaces. And I think that is that kind of, you know, recolonizing of the mind, mm -hmm. if that's not too strong a word, I think is, is, is really, is really frightening right now. It is. Um, well, wait, wait, before you transition, okay, before you please, transition, please. I, it, the well was totally the sign of transition. It, I know. Was, you, it was, you, you know, this well, yeah, but along, <laughs> along, along, along we were saying, Sarah, I, I was thinking a lot of Jill Dolan's work, right? Yes. The utopian performance and how, you know, the liberatory, you know, the, 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 the liberation, that sort of uplifting potential of the arts is to create a sense of community, right? Mm -hmm. To sort of imagine a set of possibilities, to have a moment where you're transported. You could see yourself, you're part of a community. And I think that what the book bands do in particular, and this is the danger of them, is that they deny people that possibility, right? So they deny a person the opportunity to imagine, you know, sort of themselves as part of a community, to see that they're not alone in their experience. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's the harm of it. So when you look at you know what the nature is of these bands you know it's usually uh, and i think the from the article that we, i guess we'll post online as well right it was like 30 percent of the bands in texas florida missouri utah and south carolina uh, related to race and racism and 26 percent um, uh, were bands related to subject matter that was tied into lgbtq identity right mm -hmm. and so when you really drill in, into that 
you know, for the LGBT, LGBTQ identity uh, bands, it's usually around relationships. And then for theater, it's around one stage kissing, hmm. right? And so you think about like indecent being banned, for example, you know, in a school play. And that is something that we want to be aware of, that right. you're denying the opportunity for someone to see themselves and their experience. And then if you shut off that possibility and you fast forward 30 years, right, you're also denying, you're creating a culture you know, of resistance to a person's uh, very being. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the harm. So I look at these book bans in, in schools, elementary schools, as sort of saying you're, you're training, and this is the, the, the colonization part of it, the mind, you know, you're training a generation uh, to not see and not validate and not support mm -hmm. uh, the lived experiences of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's some really interesting connections between our first two topics. Um, we would love to talk, I would love to talk more about these, but uh, we do need to, to move on and we selected, I don't know, a topic that maybe will be a little bit lighter, though it, of course, is, is a um, depart, it, its point of departure is a tragic event, the death of Matthew Perry at a young age, I think he was 54, 55, um, famous sitcom actor, Canadian-American, um, best known, of course, for playing Chandler Bing in Friends, um, but came from a family of actors. Um, I don't know, uh, <laughs> this was not, um, I will out myself as someone who never really got friends that much. It was not my sitcom of preference. Uh, this may reveal an elitist streak on my side. Of course, acknowledge the talent of Matthew Perry and listen to an interview with him that was on Fresh Air, rebroadcast on Fresh Air recently. And of course, a big part of what he's remembered for too is his public discussions of his struggle with chemical dependency and addiction. Um, so we wanted to talk about Matthew Perry and what the, I don't know, the, the ramifications are of this event, his life, et cetera. Um, I don't know, maybe we can start off by talking about our experience, our memory of, of Matthew Perry in different phenomena of his career. Um, uh, Harvey, start us off, please. Yes, ha I'm happy to, <laughs> to, to, to start off. I, I, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I would nominate you to give Matthew Perry's eulogy. But yeah, so so what I what I there's a couple things I want to say about Matthew Perry. You know, first, he strikes me as being an artist, along with that collective of friends, artists as well. You know, who are in that generation in which we all were aware of Friends, and even if you didn't watch Friends, you knew it existed, right? You know, so of that generation where the major TV shows essentially are on three or four channels. And you're either watching what's on ABC or NBC or you're watching what's on CBS, but that's, but that's, yes. that's kind of it. And that doesn't exist anymore, right? It's harder to find people who are watching in real time, like appointment viewing, and having a, having a similar set of experiences, yep. right? Even if you sort of binge watch something and you're like live tweeting, you're often at some level of disconnect, mm -hmm. you know, because you're watching mm -hmm. episode three, someone else is with episode seven, yep. and you're just trying to find some level of connection. So I think there's, I think he's one of the last generation, I would say, of people who is universally recognizable. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that he died at such a relatively young age, I think is significant. Uh, and then for me, when I went through his filmography, you know, I had not realized how present he had been in my own TV spectatorship and viewing over the years. You know, so just to give you some guest spots that he was in, uh, working sort of 
you know, from younger age to older age, he was in Charles and Charles, Char- Charles in Charge, mm. uh, Silver Spoons. And, uh, oh, episodes. Silver Spoons. Yeah. Yes. The Tracy Ullman show, uh, Highway to Heaven, two episodes of Highway to Heaven, which I will admit I, I watched many episodes of Highway to Heaven as a kid. Uh, Empty Landon, Nest. Right? Uh, it was Michael Landon, yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, Growing Pains was in three episodes of that. Who's the Boss? You know, an episode of 90210. So things that I consumed regularly mm-hmm. you know he had this sort of spectral presence as a guest star in an episode or two or three yep. and then for him to appear in 240 plus episodes of friends over a decade you know sure. like he just has like even if you're not a friends fan he's yep. a part of your life and 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 this is i think part of the the previous you know, uh, feed of, of culture that we had, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, we were being programmed a certain way by the networks to have to know these individuals exist. Right. But it's the tail end of the era of mass media Absolutely. that in a way, you know, Dorson and Gill are saying has been replaced and very obviously has been replaced. Absolutely. Sarah, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm struck by a couple of things. One is, um, uh, well, I keep going back to how to, to your sort of picking up on what you said, Harvey, the degree to which at a certain point, all of the the six stars of Friends became indistinguishable from their characters on that show. Yes. So I would say that, you know, there is Matthew Perry, but it is almost inseparable from, from Chandler. And, you know, I saw many of those shows that you just listed. I couldn't name a single instance where I had seen him, yes. right? But he is... You know, but I can think of anyway from like a you know a dozen or more you know kind of key friends moments. So one of the things I, I wanted to sort of was thinking about in in terms of of Matthew Perry in the show is how how rarely we think about that kind of performance as acting. Yes. Hmm. Um, we tend to put it within a it, it becomes so definable within the genre that that we I find don't pay a lot of attention to acting as craft or or art in, in that space. But what's interesting is that if you look at the character of Chandler and his function within the six friends, um, he's, he's the only one who never has a definable job. Yes. <laughs> right? So, um, and, and there are lots of kind of um, jokes that are riffs about this, right? Like when, if you've watched the series Friends with College, Friends from College, that goes back to many of these kinds of tropes and rethinks them in the, in the aught, context of the aughts. Right, it's like one of them is just like this rich guy, and so the <laughs> the assumption. But we never knew if Chandler was just a rich guy. We just kind of, you know, he didn't have he didn't have a job, um, but he also was the only person who frequently was allowed um, uh, critical irony into the situations. Like there was a sort oh. of earnestness yes. or naivete among everybody else, uh, but. But he was the—he was often, in fact, his trademark physical move. Which, this being a podcast, I—I I won't attempt for you. But <laughs> you can, we can describe you, it. I'll describe what you do. You yeah. can imagine, <laughs> right? Nice. I, it's the—it's the arms extended double take, and and that is was a gesture of uh, of eighties and nineties, uh, and I would say even late seventies sitcom culture, yes. right? So the yeah. the single camera because. Yes. Um, once you got more cameras, you could do the same kind of effect and joke technologically. But before that, you had to do it with the with the physicality. And so he kind of cemented that in mm-hmm. a kind of physical gestural vocabulary. But also, he he frequently was sort of staring in disbelief at the at the actions of his mm-hmm. uh, of his compatriots um, in a way that that 
nothing else in the show encouraged. Mm-hmm. No yes. one else. You were never supposed to look at the, even though it was the 90s, you were never supposed to look at this ironically. You were never supposed to question, you know, how did a bunch of broke kids afford, <laughs> you know, the most massive and beautiful apartment in, in New York? Why is Central Park <laughs> yeah. so clean all the time? Uh, but, That's, you know. This is great. Because I, I, I have wispy memories. I could, I feel like I remember what Central Park is. I remember Phoebe and Smelly Cat. I remember a little bit. I cannot ever keep straight who was sister. Wasn't it Ross and Monica were siblings? Is that right? Yes. Yes. And then the Gellers. Chandler ends up uh, uh, proposing to her or in love with Monica. Is that right? So is it that the fact that he was sort of the, you know, what's amazing about this is you're, you're totally accurate on this, but you're pretending like you don't know. This. I, it, it had, I had to do something. <laughs> Listen, I, I basically, what I, has happened. He's is like, no, no, 90s, I'm, I'm, I'm not a friend's I'm fan. A I'm just fan. a, I'm just an excellent researcher. Yeah, I've been my doing perso- my history. And my personality Ignore is not my friend's like screensaver. <laughs> Yes. So, I, I know I have done the th- the friends experience three times, but just just because I really needed to know. I no, I remember I would come home from college, you know, my senior year, I'd be in, in my living room in the afternoon, my roommate Aaron Rust, what's up Aaron, you're probably not listening, but would have friends on in the afternoon because that's when it was on TV and I'd be like, what is this? I guess I'm going to sit and watch this. Well, let me Okay, let me, wait, so wait, so, so so now you're telling us, yes. you know, that in college you would in the afternoon watch TV, watch friends. Well, yes, but yes. I wouldn't. Yes, I couldn't yes. have told you when. It was never me putting it on TV. It yes. was. It, it just was, happened I was to be room. on. Yep, I understand that. One. Okay, my personality is basically, <laughs> a, you know, modeled on Chandler, and I am in denial about it. Well, but listen, I, I, in preparation for this, I wanted to bring up some theater historical. That was <laughs> theater the news, theoretical. That, that was the news feed right there. Like it was, it was being programmed for him. <laughs> yes, I didn't. Yeah, I. I absolutely was on the receiving end of trying to be my own Chandler, and it's worked out okay. <laughs> Um, could it have been more successful? Uh, but one thing I'll say is the <laughs> one thing this brought me in mind of is the is the status of the sing or the multi-camera sitcom as a kind of theatrical form by virtue of the fact that the live audience is part of it. I do think, and you know, Sarah, going back to old chestnuts of the podcast, I do think the live audience is a is a important, perhaps distinguishing feature of certain types of performance, and that. In contrast to the, you know, the off the office model where it's a faux documentary and there are people in the room, but there's not a studio audience. The the live feedback loop, right? The actor on stage making people laugh. That awareness feeding the performance. I think that's a special thing, and I think you can think of sitcom acting as being a a subtype of of theatrical acting. Oh, and for the, sure. Yeah, and then there's something else, which is that, um, and I shouldn't give his eulogy. I don't mean to disrespect the man. He was super talented and, and well beloved and deservedly so. But there's something about the figure of the actor who becomes so identified with a role that it then becomes a sort of figure of pathos later in life. And I think that's true of of sitcom actors. And there's a kind of, you know, uh, I think a Hollywood trope or type of the actor who is in a certain way condemned by their own success because they become so identified with a particular role that it's hard to cast them as anything else. And this predates, uh, you know, sitcoms and television. If uh, Eugene O'Neill's um, uh, uh, oh my gosh! What is the what is his Tyrone? Uh, yeah, Tyrone. His the you know the figure of, Count of the Monte father Cristo. was the Count of Monte Cristo. He was so successful in a role that it became him. It became his whole professional identity, and was a difficult thing for him to bear. And I, in the interviews with Matthew Perry that I've looked at, I don't know that he's addressed that, you know, uh, directly. But I do think many of those actors that was the big moment in their career and they've had projects after that um, and they've been productive after that but I think it can become difficult to escape the 
inertia and the overwhelming familiarity and popularity of a particular character, and that's one of the hazard, I think, occupational hazards of acting. Yeah, and Matthew Perry, you know, was the son of a of, a, of an actor. Yes. You know, who's sort of a journeyman, like a journeyman actor, who had his own struggles. And, and so I was thinking of the O'Neill thing almost in terms of of not wanting to be the father, right? Yes. Not wanting to be James O'Neill, and 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 the father, like if you look at his uh, credits. Most recently, when he's a, like in the last decade or so, or the last twenty years, when he's appeared on screen, it's been as the father of Matthew Perry, mm-hmm. right? You know, which which is own weird, hmm. weird, I don't know, double layering of of yeah. whatever Life exists within that within that family. Those challenges as well. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a long day's journey in tonight. It's the it's the play, of course, but we you identified the the role. Um, well, have we have we exhausted and covered what Matthew Perry's life and legacy can, can we, tell us. We have not, but I think one could do, uh, but I, I, I do want to just, you know, uh, express sympathies and, and condolences to, to his family and anyone else who yeah. really cared about him. I think that sometimes we underestimate the effect of these social cultural losses. Indeed. Um, but uh, it, in, in tribute, I went back to my favorite piece of writing about Friends which is by uh, David Hopkins. This was published in, in March 2016 in Medium. And, uh, and it is, uh, the title is How a TV Sitcom Triggered the Downfall of Western Civilization. Uh, <laughs> the one where we retain our sanity in a stupid world. And I would just, inc- if you have any interest at all in revisiting or, or processing your friend's grief, I would really encourage you to go back because for, for Hopkins, he, he basically identifies Ross as, a, as an intellectual, a scientist, uh, uh, who is brought low by, uh, by and undermined by, <laughs> by the his, stupidity of his friends, his and, and it is an it is an amazing kind of against the grain read of friends that both illuminates and, to my mind, also enriches the the banality for which the the show was both a a comfort and and an irritant uh, in its time. I. I love this. This reminds me of the Cats episode. The the I tend to underestimate the significance of these pop cultural items, um, but but Sarah, you never do. In 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 defense of the bad, you know, this is this is this is. This is it me. was a bit. It just wasn't my taste. It, it, Friends to me was like the sitcom you would buy at Target. There were other sitcoms that were that seemed to be, have more, I don't know, flavor or identity or distinction to them. However, um, what was your favorite sitcom? I, I was much more of a Seinfeld. Uh, fan, you know, to, to go to the 90s. I felt like that was, that continued to, to, um, to serve. Uh, and I've rewatched recently, but Frasier also, like Frasier, the writing on Frasier is more, well, uh, you know, it's in, inflected by playwriting conventions and sort of well-made play constructions. Mm-hmm. And a, uh, I think given to a kind of theatricality that I also appreciate. So I would say Frasier and Seinfeld were more my jam than friends. Well, it was highway to heaven for me. <laughs> it was strictly Michael Landon. So we will move on to our final segment, which is our drafts. Um, listeners to the podcast will, of course, know that our drafts are, listen, it's a pun on pulling a draft from uh, a tap and also uh, the draft that is on your computer that you're thinking, am I going to write this? Am I going to finish this? What am, I, what am I thinking about? What am I reading? Um, I don't know. Sarah, Harvey, who would like to go first with your with your draft, Sarah? So I will, uh, 
be a, a, a bit maybe a little off topic and and also uh you'll you'll forgive the the overt nepotism but i'd i'd like my draft is is actually talking um a little bit about my son diego who is currently a, a fourth year uh, specialist in ancient philosophy at the university of toronto and uh diego had previously spent uh, his senior year of high school in in germany in an exchange program in in berlin so which means that every other city is totally inferior for the rest of his life. So um, we clearly ruined him. But he got the opportunity to do two different programs that um, I'll, I'll make this somewhat connected in a moment. One is is the iPracticum program in which he was able to go into a, a, a high school as a German tutor and and work with and, and sort of help students learn German. And his current program is this thing called the Socrates Project, in which students can apply, undergraduate, you know, upper level, upper level students can apply to serve as TAs in first year intro philosophy courses. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty involved process. You have to like do an independent study and write a paper. And, and then, you know, you get like, Diego has two sections of like 22 students each. Wow. And so he's like learning to grade and like, and do his own, you know, he conducts two tutorials a week. And anyway, and it just, I mean, I'd never heard of anything like this before. Mm -hmm. And I think it is so marvelous mm -hmm. because as he sort of thinks about his professional life, which, you know, I think he has aspirations, you know, heaven preserve him, uh, for, towards academia, um, it has put teaching as a key component of that work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like so often we come to teaching late yes. or, or not at all, or it's just this kind of thrust upon us and it's like, here, go. And so I love the idea that, that, that the idea of, of learning is laden in a structured teaching program. And I, I've been thinking a lot about the informal peer teaching that theater programs rely on. Um, I think there's always a little bit of this, but they're not usually so formalized and they're not usually so deliberate um, and structured and, and scaffolded and supported so that students who are doing that kind of work, particularly in the current context, you know, can really do it effectively and, 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 and safely or, you know, with, with the kind of support. So, um, so I've just, I found myself thinking a lot about, you know, since now I'm a dean and I do very little teaching, if at all, how I can think about building those opportunities for our students, whether they're going to go on to professional teaching careers or not, but just to be thinking about a mode of learning that is also involved in, in, in pedagogy and, 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 and rigorous attention to teaching. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. That's great. Harvey? Yeah, for me, it's, I'm, I'm reading three books right now. They're books I'm reviewing for I'm writing book reviews, like one's for a journal, the other one's for a newspaper. Uh, and so I'm reading uh, The Sisterhood Performing Black, uh, sorry, The Sisterhood Performing Female Blackness and Singing a Black Girl's Song. Um, and they're all about uh, black women performers, uh, sort of theater makers. Um, and, and, and it's really interesting to me that, th that there's this constellation of new works coming out right now mm. in this moment you know, that offers insight into uh, black women's experience, subjectivity, uh, and sort of creative impact, you know, on society at, at different moments in time. And just to focus upon um, the singing of black girl song one, which is edited by Monty Perry, and that is the unpublished work of Intoshake Shange. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's really interesting about it is that 
like the work is unpublished, right? You know, <laughs> like, you know, like, like, yeah. like, like Sean Gay emerged, yeah. you know, like in the 60s, right? Yep. Um, and it's shocking to me that there's so much stuff that has not been published up until right now. Uh, and there was an archives. It wasn't like it was, it was missing or hidden. It was just like no one published it. And no one thought to publish it, you know? Really? And I was thinking about, and this is my draft, right? Sort of thinking about, you know, how the work of an artist, you know, can sort of pop up in a moment mm -hmm. and then can be forgotten, yep. right? So you think about uh, how impactful For Colored Girls is, you know, uh, you know, Sean Gay's choreo poem. And yet, in light of how impactful that piece is, how impactful Sean Gay is, you know, the fact that she struggled financially, that her work wasn't produced really all that widely until she passed away recently, uh, and that people are now rediscovering her work, you know, like that I find shocking, you know. So, so it's interesting to me how we allow ourselves to forget people. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, that's fantastic. I did not know um, about those unpublished works. I assume there's some poetry or performable plays that hopefully will yeah, it's 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 um, excerpts from a memoir that mm -hmm. she was working on. It's poems that are a poetry that's not published, and what's fascinating about it is you can you can see the emergence of a voice. Mm -hmm. yeah. And 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 Imani writes about this in her introduction that this becomes because a lot of her work is autobiographical, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it becomes a first draft for the next person to come along to actually write a great biography mm -hmm. of Shange. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, thank you for, for sharing sharing those thoughts. My draft, I, I wanted to talk about the, the conference a little bit um, uh, and, and all positive, but I wanna highlight a couple of things. Harvey, I think you deserve credit, especially for this one, here, here. the first one, um, which is that there's so many prominent senior scholars who are here, many more than I am used to seeing at a typical Aster. And I'm tempted to run down the names, but I'm afraid I'll just leave people out. But people who are, let's say, my advisor's generation, um, uh, dozens of people. And I think, Harvey, I understand that you wanted to program a distinguished scholar reception or event that probably brought uh, a fair number or sort of critical mass of these people in and then many other people are here so it's just wonderful to see at an aster uh, people who created the field people who have reached the highest level who you know it, it's um uh, that is wonderful and i just want to say that that's something i'm going to re remember about this conference i hope it can be replicated in the future um and the other thing um, uh, I think that uh, Jimmy Noriega deserves the credit for this, but um, yesterday I went to one of the meeting spaces that was designated and added to the conference late to discuss the war in Israel and Palestine. Um, uh, I went to a session, there were you know, 25, 30 people there. Um, it was, I think, necessary. It was a space where people could talk about what they're dealing with with their students. They have grieving students on campus. Um, there is suppression of free speech going on on campuses. Um, it was a place that was very ethical, you know, very clear what people were there to do. And really it was just a sort of seeking out of community and a desire to be able to speak openly about what people are experiencing in this moment in relationship to our scholarly and teaching work. Um, we were there for, I think, two hours um, most people spoke, there was some dialogue, um, there was some debate, there were no action items, it didn't become a, 
you know, basis for a plan, future plan, but I felt like I met colleagues that I didn't know. Um, it was just very positive, a very positive experience for me, and I just wanted to uh, note that and, and give the organization credit. To me, it was an example of what Aster can do when it's at its best, bringing people together to talk about things that are super hard to talk about. So that's, that's my draft. With that, we need to relinquish the room. Um, <laughs> Harvey, Sarah, as always, it is a joy. I want to thank you again for, for being part of this, giving your time and, and talent to this enterprise. Um, enjoy the rest of the conference. Enjoy your time in Providence. And uh, listeners, uh, stay tuned. We'll have another podcast for you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, panel. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com, email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can also find us on Blue Sky Social at ontappodcast. Podcast.